Turn with me to Rev, uh, the book of Romans, chapter 5. I want to teach on salvation this morning. feels like a proper thing to do, not just how to be born again, the purpose of salvation, but also for us what it should look like once we are born again. My pastor, Dr. Barclay, was with us unexpectedly a few weeks ago for a surprise visit. And one of the things he said that I loved so much, he thought he was going political for a moment for those that were in the service, but he said, when immigrants come to our nation, and he always qualified legally, because we believe in legal stuff. If it's legal, we pretty much endorse most of it, unless it's Colorado Mile High legal stuff. <laughs> when, you, when an immigrant comes to our nation, as most of our forefathers did, all, we all come from immigrants somehow or another, forced or willingly. Most of the Europeans actually were brought in as slaves themselves by the British. Don't hate the British. They enslaved even their own kids. The first slaves to America were children from Ireland, eight and nine years old. Uh, they were street urchins that were spirited away. In fact, the term spirited away comes from the British slave trade where they kidnapped children and street urchins and even stole them away from their families and put them on ships where they made money for the colonies. When you come as an immigrant to our nation, it's expected that you learn our culture. It's expected that you learn our language. It's expected you begin to dress like we do because you want to assimilate to the nation you claim you want to be a part of. When I go to Africa, which I do a lot, COVID put some things on pause, I enunciate with their accent so they can understand me. I learn their customs so I don't offend them. And I'm more than joyfully, happily wearing their clothing because I think it's some of the most wonderful clothing on the planet. I eat their food. Even though I'm a white guy, I try to be as African as possible because I'm honored to be there. And you can see a change in me when I'm there and then when I come home. Dr. Barclay made the point that when you come into this kingdom, there's an expectation that you learn kingdom language. There's an expectation you learn kingdom culture. There's an expectation you dress like the kingdom, you act like the kingdom. You start smelling like the kingdom. You start living like the kingdom. And if not, we wonder why do you even want to be a part of the kingdom? So when we talk about salvation, it's not just a matter of being born again and making Jesus Christ your Savior and Lord. It's a matter of the effect that he has in your life after you've been born again. We're facing a tremendous danger today where we're watching a lot of the body of Christ decide they're no longer in love with Jesus or his rules or his regulations or his commandments, which there are many, but that's also called a relationship. I don't know if you realize it or not, but every relationship has rules and regulations. If you parent, you get this. If you're in a marriage relationship, there are rules and regulations to your relationship with uh, your, your spouse. There's certain things you don't ever do. There's certain things you must always do. I don't know if you knew this or not. You should always go home when you're married. That makes things better. And you should always help in the marriage. All right. So you get it. In covenants, there are rules and regulations. We're watching a lot of people now decide they want to divorce Jesus like they divorced their last three spouses. And he'll let you do that. It just won't benefit you. We need to understand the purpose of salvation and the after effect it should have. I, as a pastor, am watching folks claim to be born again, but show zero effect of God's work in their life. Now, Pastor Vaughn, my first real pastor, he used to say, if God has come to live in your life, there should be a difference. He would always use the example, if I moved into your apartment and brought all of my stuff with me, you would know I was there. And we'd always laugh, yeah. Now God has come to live in you with all the fullness of the Godhead. We ought to be able to tell he's there. Amen. But as it is, we're watching a lot of Christians who they call themselves Christians, but you can't tell they have God at all. 
They might have a Sunday school pin. They might have a church membership, but you can't tell they're set apart. You can't tell they're part of God's kingdom. You can't tell they're one of the king's kids. They look like the world, smell like the world, talk like the world, but they're a deacon. And that's unacceptable. So when we talk about the plan of salvation, it's not about simply getting you out of hell, but it's also about changing your life to the day you die. And so I want to talk about some of this. This will be a review for some. For some, this might hash out some doctrine because we ought to be soul winners and we're going to have to teach people what salvation's all about. We have to tell them first the bad news, which is this. Without Jesus Christ as your Savior, you're going to hell. That's the bad news. You cannot appreciate good news until you first know the bad news. So here's the horrific news. Apart from Jesus Christ, you're going to hell. The only name given unto heaven whereby we must be saved is the name of Jesus. But the good news is he died to redeem us. And if you'll accept his free gift, you can have eternal life. But I want to talk about the mechanics of it because I'm a teacher and not an evangelist. If I was an evangelist, we could wrap this message up in five minutes and get the gospel out there. But I'm not an evangelist. I'm a teacher, so I have to teach it. So you're in Romans chapter 5, verse 12. The Bible teaches us this. Remember that book, the Bible? Yeah, you should know it if you're a Christian. We're not ashamed of it around here. Amen. And I would really encourage you to look at it more than just on your app. I'm not against apps. I stayed up late last night, was reading all the scriptures in the Old Testament on the Sabbath. I'm trying to wrap my mind around the Sabbath. I'm not against an app, but you ought to know your Bible. I can tell you, maybe as sharp as my mind might appear to be, after I transitioned from a Blackberry to an iPhone and put a Bible app on my iPhone, my ability to recall scriptures has plummeted because I just go to an app now rather than depending upon my recall of constantly studying the Bible. And I'm ashamed of that. For the heart of scriptures, I used to keep a concordance in my desk here. So if I had to find a verse before they were apps, some of you don't know what it is to live a life without apps. But there was once a time, 11 years ago, when there was no such thing as apps. And there wasn't an app for that. There was a brain for that. And we used our noggin that we had trained Amen. Know your Bible, because nobody can know it for you. And the wonderful thing is, as a Christian, God wants to talk to you for you through his Bible. You don't have to go through an intermediary. Romans 5.12. Therefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sin. Let's pause there. This is talking about Adam being the one man who caused sin to pass through all of mankind. If you remember the Genesis account, which we won't turn there, but Genesis chapter 3 is where it begins to unfold. Satan comes along and he tempts Eve. Adam is present with Eve. Adam knows the law. We don't eat of the fruit of this tree, but Eve is tempted. She partakes. Adam eats too, and they sin against God. God had said, the day that you eat of this fruit, you shall surely die. The problem is they didn't die instantly. Their bodies died 900 plus years later. We know through doctrine they died spiritually. They were now dead to God. That is what sin does to you. Not sins, plural, but sin. Every one of us is destined to sin at some point in our life. The, doctrinal, uh, the doctrine is called the, sin of, uh, the age of accountability. We don't know when or where that is. We don't know if it's as a four-year-old or if it's as an eight-year-old. Maybe if you're developmentally stunted or you have, maybe you're on the autism spectrum or mental, uh, mentally handicapped or whatever the proper terms are, those children may never pass through an age of accountability. 
maybe a Down syndrome child. I don't know. I can't answer that question. But for most of us, it's five, six, seven, eight years old. We become conscious of what our parents have taught us. That's the law of God in our life. We've been taught right from wrong, right from wrong, right from wrong, right from wrong. And at some point, we make a conscious decision as we've aged in our soul to willfully rebel against the law of God in our life. And so when that happens, we're like Adam and Eve in the garden. We die spiritually. And it was an act of sin. Didn't matter what it was. It was an act of rebellion against established law. Paul said it in Romans 7. He said, I was alive once without the law. But when the law came, sin revived and I died. Same principle. Well, Paul didn't die. He's writing the epistle to the Romans. But what happened was sin revived and he died spiritually. And that's why you have to go to hell without a savior because we've all sinned. Doesn't matter what it was. It wasn't the homosexuality that sent you to hell. It was probably lying to your mother at the age of six. It wasn't the drunkenness or the debauched fornication or the trip to the frat party that sent you to hell. It was the rebellion that entered your life at nine years old when you looked at your mother or your father and you said, I hate you. And you did it with determination. At some point, and we don't know where it is, sin revives, we willfully rebel against the law of God, and we curse our own life. And now we need a redeemer. Because dead spirits, that's who we are before Christ. The Bible teaches us we're a threefold being, spirit, soul, body, spirit, soul, body. It is in our spirit man that we die to God and we become spiritually dead. Dead spirits cannot live forever in the presence of the living God. They must be condemned to a devil's hell. And that is why we need a redeemer, a savior who can come and atone for us. No amount of works can undo what was spiritually set. Can you imagine dying in the spirit realm and trying to recuperate it by picking up trash on the side of the highway? Can you imagine being dead to God spiritually, being uh, divorced and separated from the life of God and trying to get back into that spiritual place by feeding orphans? But this is the ignorance that runs into a lot of people's theology. They say, well, I'm a good person. I do good works. And we have to remind them no amount of good works can ever pull you out of hell. The Bible tells us in Ephesians, it's not of works lest any man should boast. And we're talking about the mechanics of salvation. So Paul said in Romans 5, as by one man sin entered into the world and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men for that all have sinned. We have all sinned, which means at some point we all died spiritually. And in that moment, if we were to die, even at 11 years old, we would go to hell. That offends people. I don't make the rules. I read the Bible. I give you God's doctrine. The Jews in their doctrine uh, taught that at the age of 13, that was the age of law accountability. And that's when they developed the bar mitzvah or son of the law and the bat mitzvah or the daughter of the law. And it's at that point when they would pass through the bar mitzvah or the bat mitzvah under the old covenant, they would then be stoned for their own sins. So a 13-year-old, if you can understand Jewish culture, by 13, the law and the Jews said they're responsible now to walk with God on their own. Coincidentally, that confirms, or neuroscience confirms that by 13, a child's personality is basically set. 
And now you have to go into what I call reparative discipleship. You disciple to the time they're 13. You basically get what you get by 13. And after that, we got to do a lot of stump pulling to get folks where they need to be if their parents didn't set them there. All right, you're looking at me all befuddled because you believe the American standard of 18. The American standard of 18 was changed by Congress during Vietnam from 21. So are you going to let Congress set your age of accountability? You think Congress is bad now? Think about the 1960s. You're not one of those people that trust the federal government to take care of you and make wise decisions, right? No, you're not. No. So in my household, my kids know that we disciple them till 13. I don't, I don't trust 18. 13. I focus till 13. I focus till 13. I focus till 13. And then we got to change our parenting after that. So we have this age of accountability. We've all died. And once we die spiritually, we must be born again. That's a New Testament term used by Jesus Christ. You do remember Jesus, right? I think a lot of the church is forgetting who he is. We're looking to rock star preachers. We're looking to rock star authors. We want to make sure we stick with the scripture. Verse 13, for until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed where, when there is no law. Verse 14, nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses. That's spiritual death. Even over them that had not sinned after the similitude of Adam's transgression, who is the figure of him, that is Jesus, that was to come. But, thank goodness for that conjunction there. But, not as the offense, so also is the free gift. For if through the offense of one many be dead much more the grace of God and the gift by grace, which is by one man, Jesus Christ, has abounded unto many. And so this tells us where sin began with the first Adam and where sin was atoned for at Jesus, who the Bible calls the last Adam. When Moses came along, God entered into a covenant with his people and all things were purified by blood. In fact, Hebrews teaches us that nearly everything under the old covenant was washed by, by blood. It goes on to say specifically, for without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. Under the covenant of the Old Testament, your sins were covered with blood, the blood of bulls and goats. And because there were always annual sacrifices, there was always an annual reminder, you're still sinful and dirty. You're still sinful and dirty. And all of that was designed by God to point towards Jesus Christ the ultimate sacrifice, the lamb that was to come, who would die on the cross of Calvary. And all those things spoken of by Moses and the prophets pointed towards Jesus and pointed towards Jesus and pointed towards Jesus and pointed towards Jesus. It really is unfortunate that the modern church says, ignore the Old Testament. In fact, one famous heretic out of Atlanta says, uncouple your doctrine from the Old Testament. One of his famous heretical statements in the last year and a half. Christians, he said, to quote the heretic, you should uncouple your doctrine from the Old Testament. I don't quite sure you understand how the Bible works, sir. This guy also had a Led Zeppelin concert in his church when they came back from COVID. No, no, Pink Floyd. I don't think it's any better. He let his worship team cover a Pink Floyd album, and that was their comeback to church after being shut down from COVID for a year and a half. Atlanta, Bible Belt. So you start your church back with a Pink Floyd concert. Really good, actually. I watched part of it on YouTube. I thought, that's a really good. You sound just like them. They're all in hell, which is probably where you're leading your church, by the way, but that's a really good mix. You're not more creative than that? You couldn't come up with your own songs? And make maybe Christian ones that worship Jesus and not the ones the potheads and the stoners like? 
That sounds judgy. Yeah, so is my God. Super judgy. So we come to this concept that everything is covered with blood. And without it, there's no remission of sins. So there's this constant remembrance and this constant remembrance and this constant remembrance that you're guilty, you're guilty, you're guilty. All these things point towards Jesus Christ. And he would say in the Gospels, read Moses and the prophets, for I am he that they speak of. You and I, this side of the cross, we can see it perfectly. We can see every type, every shadow. We can see the lamb on the cross and cursed is every man that hangs upon the tree. We can see the blood, the lamb of God. Even John the Baptist said, behold, the lamb of God that taketh away the sins of the world, which was a callback to the Passover lamb. We see it. They couldn't see it. Religion causes you to have all the pieces in front of you, but you can't see the picture. Hebrews 9.22 tells us that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. And so that brings us into the New Testament because from Moses until Jesus Christ's baptism at the River Jordan, Israel was under a sacrificial system of bulls and goats and turtle doves and pigeons and bulls and goats and turtle doves and pigeons and a red heifer for the waters of purification and bulls and goats and turtle doves and pigeons that they might atone for the sin. It's works and it's exhausting. Under the law, there are 613 commandments collectively called the mitzvah, coined by a 12th century uh, rabbi named Maimonides. He made the, the list popular, but there's only 613 laws under the Old Testament. There's 1,050 in the New Testament, which is a 40% increase. So we're more free now, right? Because we have 40% more law. All those laws, the Jews worked and worked and worked and worked and worked trying to be right with God. And it was exhausting. In the last year and a half, I have begun to study heavily the Talmud and the Midrash, which are the Jewish commentaries of the Old Testament. You have the Jerusalem Talmud, you have the Babylonian Talmud, you have the Midrash, you have the Mishnahs. You have a lot of what are called um, uh, post-biblical writings. They were oral traditions and oral commentaries that the sages taught in interpreting the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. About the second century AD, they began to be write, written down to be copied and codified. When you read some of those writings, you realize how exhausting the Jews had become in trying to find their righteousness. Uh, it is quite humorous to read how they come up with all their rules. They read in between the lines because they were terrified of upsetting God. One example, the Old Testament records four spices to be mixed to make the holy incense. The Jews developed 11 using the conjunctions and the double use of the word spice. And to read their logic is really like watching a politician try to justify what they've done. And so whereas the book of Exodus says four spices, they came up with a list of 11. And the whole of the Talmud is full of examples like that. So you can understand why Jesus says, your traditions make the word of God of none effect. You are trying so hard to please what should have been very easy to please. He said, you're tithing on mint and cumin and anise, and you've forgotten just simple judgment and mercy and compassion. 
So the Lord Jesus comes along and he simplifies things and he throws a Pharisee a massive curveball. Go to the Gospel of John. Look at John chapter 3, not 316, though it's tempting to go there. John chapter 3, verse 1. Let's look there because I want to talk about how salvation works. Under the Old Testament, you had to keep all the laws. And basically the Old Covenant, the Old Testament laws were simple do's and don'ts. And if you violated the do's and don'ts, then there was a whole prescription of what to atone for with the do's and the don'ts. Really exhausting. You had don'ts that you shouldn't do, and you had do's that you should do. And if you didn't do the don'ts and you didn't do the do's or the don'ts, you're in trouble. And then there was a prescription for how you should atone for the don'ts you didn't do and the do's that you did do. It's exhausting, isn't it? That's Judaism. It's also Southern tradition. We don't look down our nose at them. We've done the same thing with the Bible that's written in the New Testament lingo. <laughs> so you have all these things that you should do to honor God, but the law also contained all the prescriptions, almost a chart. If you did this, this is the prescription for atonement. If you did this, but not that, this is the prescription for the atonement. If you did this, but you're too poor to do this, then here's the prescription for your atonement. It was designed to be exhausting so the people would say, God, just help. God, I can't do this on my own. God, this is exhausting. Lord, I, I just want to please you. And some people found that through the Old Testament. And others wrote Talmuds in the Midrash. And they, like Jesus told them, you, you tie burdens to people that you won't even move with your own finger. And he was referring to the Talmudic traditions and the Midrash, the Midrashic traditions. So John chapter 3, verse 1. Here's a man, a Pharisee. Now let me also say, Pharisees arose in the second century BC during the time of the Maccabees and the Maccabean revolt. If you remember, they came out of Babylonian captivity. They went as slaves into Babylon for all their idolatry. And the one thing slavery did for them was cure them of idolatry. And the Jews were smart. They said, all right, we're never doing that again. We need to get back to this Torah and make sure we serve the one and true living God. And that put their focus on the law of Moses, which was a good thing. But when you get on the law of Moses, but you miss the heart of God, you become legalism. So they spent 400 years developing laws and legality that wasn't in the law. That became the Talmud, the Midrash. So the Pharisees arise as a very zealous sect to produce or to protect the law and to make sure we don't go back to being slaves. We don't go back to being slaves. We don't go back to being slaves. They inadvertently curved around and became slaves to the law. And so with the best of intentions, they ruined themselves. They went from one ditch of idolatry to another ditch of legalism. They went from never observing the law to doing nothing but observing the law while totally missing the heart of God. So Jesus is addressing a Pharisee. This is a gatekeeper to the traditions of God and the traditions of Moses. Verse 1, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. That means he was part of the Sanhedrin. The same came, he wasn't just a Pharisee, he was also a ruler of the Jews, which means he was on the council of the Sanhedrin, the 71 Jews that adjudicated the major cases in uh, that era. The same came to Jesus by night and said unto him, Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher come from God, for no man can do these miracles that thou doest except God be with him. Jesus answered and said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. What kind of segue of conversation is that? <laughs> the statement is, we know you're from God. You're a teacher come from God because you do miracles and nobody can do that unless God's with you. And Jesus says, you must be born again. And I'm sure the Pharisees said, what? 
fact, we know that's exactly what he said because of the rest of the verses. It's interesting that Jesus uses a term that was not in the pharisaical lexicon. First time it's ever introduced in the whole Bible, Jesus said, you must be born again. That wasn't keeping the law. That wasn't the Midrash. That wasn't the Talmud. That wasn't the tradition of the sages. That wasn't the mitzvah. That wasn't, let's overthrow the Romans like we did uh, the Ptolemies and the Seleucids and the Greeks. That was, you must be born again. We can't forget, church, even though we're living in a very politicized culture, our focus is not politics. I'm all for righteous elected leaders, but we don't get sidetracked by this. Jesus Christ is dealing with a Pharisee who's one problem. He's dealing with the Roman centurions. That's another problem. He's dealing with his own disciples. That's another problem. And the Greeks that are just living it up, that's another problem. And all he keeps saying is, you must be born again. You must be born again. You must be born again. He's not encouraging anybody to go march. He's not encouraging people to burn down cities as a revival. That's not the right kind of fire we want. We want revival fire. Revival fire burns your sin down. Nicodemus says unto him, verse 4, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Verily, verily, I say unto you, or truthfully, except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. He uses the term born again because they didn't know what that term meant. When you're dealing with a super smart legalistic person, you often have to use terms to catch them off guard so they might stop and say, now what did you mean by that? When you're dealing with religious people who are stuck in their own lingo and you want to bring to them a truth that they've not seen yet, you often have to use terms that they're not used to. You want to make sure you bring them back to the Bible. Jesus is using such a term and it causes Nicodemus to ask a question, which is exactly what you have to do to help people. Know-it-alls have to be poked to a place where they ask the question because if you'll ask the question, you'll get an answer from God. How can a man be born when he's old? And Jesus says, I'm so glad you asked. You have to be born of water. Most would agree that is being born of a woman because her, her water breaks. That's the natural aspect of being born. And then you're born of the Spirit of God. And if you're not born of the Spirit of God, you can't enter the kingdom. These Jews thought they had the kingdom. They thought they were establishing the kingdom. Their concept of the kingdom, though, was like the, uh, the, the Maccabean revolt and the Maccabean dynasty, where they're going to be a nation again under David and his kingship. That's what their thought of the kingdom is. It's still a millennial concept to them. And Jesus is explaining, you have no idea what you're asking for, and you have no idea what you're talking about, though they were convinced they did and were. He said in verse 6, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. That answer is being born of the water. And that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Marvel not that I said unto you, you must be born again. This explains to us what happens when we give our life to Christ. Because when you're alive, sin revives and you die, you're dead spiritually. And now you must be born again. John chapter 1 says, Jesus Christ was the light that lighteth every man that comes into the world. We know now, I think in the last two or three years, science, you can Google it. Science has been able to capture only six or seven times the moment of fertilization when a sperm hits the egg and they capture a flash of light. They've only been able to capture it a few times, but there's now a literal flash of light captured on film when insemination happens. 
My personal belief is that's Jesus Christ breathing into every man the breath of life. He said, before I formed you, I knew you. He, uh, Hebrews calls him the father of spirits. He breathes into us the breath of life when we're conceived. That's why we believe, along with biologists, not politicians, but biologists, life begins at conception. It is interesting. Bacteria on Mars is considered life, and a baby in the womb is considered a clump of cells. We're living in the most retarded civilization ever known to man. For all our education, we are dim-witted morons. Two cells on the bottom of a rock on Mars. That's life. We found life on Mars. I found life in a woman's womb. That's not life. That's a choice. Amen. When you're born again, Jesus makes you new. You were dead. Now you've been brought into newness of life. And it didn't happen by picking up trash. It didn't happen by praying enough. It didn't happen by coming to enough church services. It didn't happen by giving change to the homeless guy. It didn't happen by adopting a pet. It didn't happen by cutting old person's grass. It didn't happen by giving to the United Way or the Red Cross. It didn't happen because you smiled at your neighbor and took them brownies when they got sick. None of that saves. That's what is called works. Paul even said, if I give my body to be burned, but I have not love, it profits me nothing. So being born again means that you're born of the Spirit of God, and that is a work you cannot instigate yourself through outward works. You killed yourself spiritually by rebellion. You saved yourself spiritually by submission. It's pretty simple. And you didn't have to go participate in a debauched Mardi Gras parade to kill yourself spiritually. You just had to lie. You just had to think evil in your heart, and that would kill you spiritually. And now you must be born again. Verse 8 says, The wind blows where it lists not, uh, where it wants, excuse me, where it listeth, where it wants, and you hearest the sound thereof, but cannot tell whence it cometh and where it goes. So is everyone that is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus answered and said unto him, How can these things be? Jesus is such an amazing evangelist because here comes the know it all Pharisee. He's not just a Pharisee, he's on the Sanhedrin council. He is a premier leader in religious Israel. And with one statement, Jesus has him asking questions. That's how you get people help. You get them to ask the questions that are necessary. How can these things be? Jesus answered and said unto him, and here's where the hammer gets dropped. You're a master of Israel and you don't know these things. He just basically said, everything you guys have done for the last 200 years, you're still ignoramuses, morons, dimwits. The sarcasm at Nicodemus's own home, at his own dinner party. I want to remind you, Jesus isn't super sweet. I've been threatening for years to write an article about dinner with Jesus. There isn't a single one, single dinner recording where somebody isn't getting nailed. You do watch none of the disciples get nailed because they learn to keep their mouth shut. (laughs) Just keep your head down and keep eating that bread. Here it comes. Here it comes. Oh, oh, oh. Did you? Or I'm sure Peter said, did you hear that guy ask that question? Here it comes. Remember when I asked that question? We still think about how you asked that question. (laughs) Jesus was really good at making people look like fools in their own homes. 
And if you don't believe me, go read your Gospels very closely. I'm thinking of in Luke 7 when the Pharisee, Simon, asked Jesus to come to his house. And the, the sinner woman comes with the, the alabaster box. And they judge her in her heart, his, their heart and say, if, if this man was a prophet, he'd know what manner of woman this is, for she's filthy. And Jesus says, I have something to ask you, Simon. And Simon says, say on, master. And then the Lord Jesus destroys him for no hospitality. I entered your house and you didn't wash my feet, which was traditional and an expectation. But this woman has ceased not to weep over my feet and wash them with her hair. You gave me no oil, but this woman has broken this costly vase over my head. You gave me no kiss. All these were expected and traditional and showed honor. You gave me no kiss. This woman has ceased not to kiss my feet. And her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she has loved much. He basically just outed Simon as a poor, horrible host to all of his dinner party guests while defending a sinner woman and didn't deny that she was a dirty woman. Dinner with Jesus it might make a good Bible study from some of you who think this preacher is a little too rough. I'm just being like Jesus. Don't come to my house. You won't come back again. No, I'm pretty chill at the house. We just eat and cut up. <laughs> Jesus said, you're a master of Israel. Your pedigree goes before you, and you don't understand this. And that's Jesus talking smack and making this man look like a fool in front of everybody assembled. Verily, verily, I say unto you, we speak that we do know and testify that we have seen, and you receive not our witness. I have told you earthly things, and you believe not. How shall you believe if I tell you of heavenly things? What a double smack to the face of this man who thought he was a spiritual leader of Israel. We don't see Nicodemus again to the garden tomb. And he's there with Joseph of Arimathea to honor the Lord in his burial. So we know he got saved. He got converted. But Jesus said, you must be born again. Go to Acts chapter 4. Jesus Christ goes to the cross of Calvary, fulfills all the typology, all the scriptures, all the prophecies. Not one bone of his is broken. He stretches forth his hand. He's crucified. His blood is spilt. They part his garments. They give him wine to drink or vinegar to drink. Uh, all of his friends abandon him. He's betrayed by his own brother, Judas. All the messianic prophecies are fulfilled that we might be born again that we might be made new creatures in Christ. And now we need to understand in verse 12, Acts 4.12, Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. The name of Jesus is the only thing that saves. The name of Jesus is the only thing that saves. There's no, there's no salvation in any other name. I like it when the options are one. It makes decision-making easier. Our nation can't decide where to pee. And they only get one option. And they still mess that up. Amen. And I'm talking about college professors, of whom we have several in this church. So I'm not picking on them because there are dumb college professors. It helps when there's only one choice. <laughs> and God knows we're so dumb he said many times, before I, behold, I set before you life and death. It's 50-50 shot. And then he looks at us and says, mm. <laughs> Chances are they're going to mess this up. So he's like, okay, open book test. And the Lord Jesus said, no, 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 no. I've spent time among them. 
It can't just be an open book test, Father. Go ahead and give them the crib sheet. Tell them what the answer is, what they should choose. So he says, I set before you life and death, cursing and blessing. Choose life. He gives us the answer. And what does the church do? Choose death. What does the world do? Choose death. It's an open book test. There's only two options. He gives us the answer and we still choose death. So he comes along a little bit further in time and says, there's only one name, only one person who can save you. His name is Jesus. That would really help the Hindus with their billion plus gods. There's only one name that saves. And his name is Jesus. There's only one that died for us. There's no salvation unless their blood has been shed for you. Mary didn't shed blood for us. Mohammed didn't shed blood for us. The bulls and goats of Hinduism didn't shed blood for us. Or the monkey gods of Hinduism didn't shed blood for us. Or Vishnu, or Shiva, or Brahma. None of them shed blood for us. There's only salvation when a person sheds blood for you. And there's only one who did that, the God-man, Jesus of Nazareth. That's the reason he's the only name given. He's the only option. Not works, not good deeds. Salvation in the name of Jesus. And that's all we have to preach. And if you can't preach Jesus, you should sit down and do something else. Look at 1 Timothy. Only one Savior. 1 Timothy tells us there's only one mediator. That helps narrow down the options. There was research done a while back. I've preached it recently. They found out psychologically the more options you give people, the more indecisive they become. We ate at a Mexican restaurant yesterday. Coming off, we were, my, my wife and I went for a hike. And it's the biggest Mexican menu I've ever seen. It was almost a publication. <laughs> and menus are big. But then you open the thing, and the font was so small. Uh, probably 200 items on the menu. I don't know. It was ridiculous. And then you turn, like, page 7, and there's the drink menu. And you can't make decisions you can't even read. You don't have time to read all that. You just get what you like from a different restaurant and hope they make it as good. Because <laughs> it does produce indecisiveness. God helps us so much. He says, there's only way to me. His name's Jesus. There's only one mediator between you and me, and his name is Jesus as well. 1 Timothy 2, verse 5. Now, verse 4. For God will have all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. There is only one mediator. There is nobody else who can stand between you and God. The wonderful thing about Christianity is you can talk to God for yourself. You talk to God for yourself. You repent to God for yourself. When our children get in trouble, we lead them in prayers of repentance so they can learn to talk to God for themselves. We're teaching them how to overcome their condemnation when their little hearts get convicted right now. We say, sweetie, did you talk to Jesus? Yes, daddy. Did you ask him to forgive you? Yes, daddy. Then he forgives you. Did you know our kids don't have to go through us for forgiveness? We don't repeal their sins. We don't atone for their sins. We don't remit their sins. Even our children go to God. At least you should be teaching them to do so. And by the way, you still need to confess your sin. There's a great heresy in the land right now that says, because we've been forgiven once, we don't ever need to confess your sin again. Apply that in your marriage. It doesn't work, does it, Robert? Oh, no. Now, you'd be sleeping on the couch on the back porch in a rainstorm. 
And if you had a dog, he'd be sleeping in your bed next to your wife. So there's a dumb man right there. No, 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 no. Uh, yeah, you apply that grace doctrine to your marriage. It won't work. When you're wrong, you say, I'm sorry. When your kids are wrong, you expect them to say, I'm sorry. That's just polite manners, much less Christian doctrine. Go to 1 John. Let's look at 1 John chapter uh, 2. I want to talk about this one mediator. I want to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ and his work for us. 1 John chapter 2. And then I'm going to switch up here a little bit and get into our expectations or the expectations upon us now that we're born again. 1 John chapter 2. Well, let me read verse, chapter 1, verse 9. If we confess our sins, let's look at verse 8. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. Everybody has sin. This is John, the revelator, writing to the church. If we say that we have no sins, we deceive ourselves. He's using a pronoun. I know our nation's very confused about those right now. But we're going to go with the traditional, every language of the world's foundation of we, which means an inclusive collective us. Usens, if you're from Spencer. Yins, use guys or weans. <laughs> John's including himself. If we, John the Revelator and his fellow ministers, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, which you must still do, by the way. Don't let a heretic tell you that this, this uh, epistle wasn't for you. That's a common teaching right now as well. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. If we confess our sins to who? That mediator, Jesus Christ. We confess our sins to a mediator. There's only one mediator, God the Father. Now, there is a place to confess your sins one to another. James chapter 5 talks about that, but that's when I've sinned against you. I understand the concept of confessional. Sometimes I do feel like a priest. People will come to my office and they feel so guilty and so sinful, they have to get it off their chest to somebody. I get that. I think there's a permission for that. It's not a solid doctrine. I don't honestly need to hear their sin. They just want to get it out in the open. They want to confess it. They want my affirmation. You've done the Bible. Let's pray. And it helps their baby faith. But as you get older you realize there's one mediator, Jesus Christ. I may have to clean up a mess when I sin against somebody and repent to them, but I confess my sin to Jesus Christ. If we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Chapter two, verse one, my little children, notice he's talking about those that struggle with this doctrine. They are children in the faith. These things write I unto you that you sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, your pastor. We have an advocate with the Father, your mama. We have an advocate with your, the, the Father, your discipler. No. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. For he is the propitiation. He is the atonement for our sins. He's the mediator. He's the advocate because he's the one that did the dying. I don't know how we mess this up. Man always likes to get into the equation and really makes it messy. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for our sins only, but also the sins of the whole world. And hereby we do know that we know him if we keep his commandments. If we keep his commandments, we know him and he calls us friend. 
If you don't keep his commandments, don't you ever dare say you're his friend. Amen. Amen. He is our advocate. The entire plan of God for salvation revolves around his son, Jesus Christ. It was his sacrifice, his name, his work, his blood, his mercy, his obedience, his atonement. And if we remove Jesus the least bit out of this equation, we're sunk. There is no salvation available to us apart from Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And so the Bible tells us in Romans chapter 10, therefore, for all these things that we've just kind of summarized briefly, if we'll believe in our heart and confess with our mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord, we shall be saved. For whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And whosoever believes on him shall not be ashamed. We will not be confounded. Salvation is as simple as believing in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead and confessing with your mouth Jesus as Lord. You'll be saved. You'll be made a new creature in Christ. You'll be born again. That's what Jesus called it, being born again. You can call it being making a decision for Christ. You can call it making a, uh, becoming a Christian. You can call it getting saved. You can call it getting your names written in the Lamb book of life, uh, Lamb's Book of Life. We don't care what you call it. We like to use a good Bible term. We use getting saved regularly, but also being born again because it's a term that lets you understand what happened when you got saved. Saved from what? Saved from hell? Saved from divine judgment, saved from damnation, saved from torment, saved from the curse of the law, saved from a lot of stuff. It's a pretty good message. Some might call it the good news. But it's only worthwhile when you understand the bad news, which is good works can't get you out of hell. Good works can't make you right with God. Good works can't atone for you. Good works can't make you the righteousness of God. Only Jesus Christ can make you the righteousness of God. Now, my final passage, 2 Corinthians. Go here, please. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 summarizes a lot of this. Verse 15. Paul says, writing by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and that Jesus died for all. Aren't you glad he didn't die for some? He died for all. That they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. Verse 16. Therefore, henceforth know we no man after the flesh, yea, though we've known Christ after the flesh, yet henceforth know we him no more. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Here's another explanation of what happens when we're born again or saved. We're made a new creature in Christ. Old things have passed away. What's the old things? That's what you were before you sinned. That's all the sinful stuff you did after you sinned and, and lost life. The wonderful thing about being born again is your past gets washed away. All the shame gets taken with it. All the guilt, all the memories, the, the filthy conscience. Hebrews calls it having a conscience purged from dead works. All of it gets taken away and you become a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. And all things are of God who has reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ. All these verses I keep reading don't involve any man or woman. They don't involve a buddy. They don't involve a preacher. They don't involve a pastor. They don't involve a priest. They don't involve Mary. They don't involve Muhammad or Joseph Smith or your favorite rock star preacher, all of these is God and Jesus doing something for us 
though we're not worthy, we don't deserve it. It's God and Jesus doing something for us because he loves. And we don't deserve it. We can't earn it. We can't maintain it. He, he is love, and we just happen to be something he decided to set his love on. Side note, he doesn't love your dog. <laughs> Salvation does not go to your dog. Ecclesiastes says, your dog descendeth to the pit. It's New Testament. I know Hanna-Barbera, somebody in the 80s made a movie called All Dogs Gotta Go to Heaven. Heresy. <laughs> Bad doctrine. Dogs don't go to heaven, neither do cats. Dogs go to some people's stomachs. Yes. Yeah, they do. The Lord told Peter, arise, kill, and eat. All men are a forfeited beast. I said this Wednesday, I think, what you and I elevate unlawfully to the status of family. Psalms 8 says it's under our feet. Every man or four-footed beast is under our feet. No nation has worshipped animals like us since the Egyptians. They worship them as gods. We worship them as children. And we're getting into lovers. Bestiality. That's American now. No nation, no cultures ever worshipped animals like America has since Egypt. We elevate these four-footed beasts that Psalm 8 says is under our feet. Genesis 1 says under our feet. We make them family, fur babies. But what we call a fur baby, brothers and sisters overseas call dinner. And they give thanks. They say, Lord, we thank you for this dog. You put the chow in chow mein, Lord. We give you thanks for these noodles and poodles. We <laughs> kittens and bits and bits and what we worship as a family member, we have brothers and sisters in Christ would happily eat for dinner if they're starving. So it's a matter of the weird perversion of our culture. And you, it's not weird to you because you were brought up in it. But internationals come here and they shake their head at the church. The average American spends about $200 a month on their pet. What could a missionary do with that? And I'm not against you having a pet, but you better make sure you're a tither and you support, at least support the world missions before you support Mr. Mittens. Because there's no reward in heaven for having an animal. While I'm on it, just briefly, because I've been hitting this a lot lately, I, I understand the soulish neediness and I've observed this in my own neighborhood. Typically, it's a lady who needs companionship because maybe her husband works too much, so she's lonely. So she talks her husband into getting a dog, a Sharpay, a Chow. I don't care. You just pick a dog. And that begins to be her comfort and her companion, though she's married and a Christian. So now her soul is set upon a dog. Not her husband. He's gone. He doesn't even know how to care for his wife, typically. And now she begins to set her affection on a dog, and that becomes her companion and her comfort because she's lonely. Loneliness is not fixed with a dog. Loneliness is fixed with a walk with God. Amen. And then she says, you know, what should we call this dog? Rex. Rex, honey, Rex is lonely. Rex needs a friend. Honey, I thought we got you Rex because you were lonely. Well, yeah, but I feel like Rex is lonely now. Rex needs a friend. 
All right, so now we get Rexina. Rexina enters the picture. So we got a chow and we got a chihuahua. So we get Rexina the chihuahua. And now the two of them are the best of friends. And, but now they keep getting out. So now we got to drop five grand on a fence. And now we can't vacation as much because of Rex and Rexina. And how are we going to put them? We got to take them with us. Can we take them? Let's make them therapy dogs. So we get them on the airplane because Rex and Rexina, they need, these are our children. Well, you got grandkids. Enjoy that. And now we got to get a $5,000 fence. And now we can't take vacations unless we get them specially checked in. And now, and now they start, well, we know we should breed these. And we'll make chihuahuas out of them or something. <laughs> if it even works that way. Because <laughs> we'll make money that way. But you were losing money. How about you just break even and get rid of everything? Meanwhile, the missionary needs money to feed human beings and to preach the gospel to the lost and train up preachers to do a better job than they could because they're nationals. And here's little miss middle-income white woman with Rex and Rexina lonely because her marriage is dysfunctional. Her walk with God is even more dysfunctional, wasting God's money on comforters and companions that are not the Holy Ghost. So tell me when that stopped being normal and became heresy. And it's just normal to us. We were backpacking, we're hiking yesterday, and we came up on some old folks hiking. What was that dog? A little Shih Tzu. You don't need yeah, We don't know dogs. This is a little dog. He kept turning on barking at me, and I thought, hmm, I wouldn't do that if I were you. So I finally stopped because we couldn't pass this group. So we got to talking to this lady, and this lady was all in love with her little dog. And she said, yeah, sometimes he does really good. He'll just bark at something. She said, I have a little backpack for him. And my wife, without missing the beat, said, ma'am, he has more legs than you. I said, Walk, woman, walk. <laughs> Just shush and walk. Just because you think it doesn't mean you have to say it. Because I wanted to say, and he should be pulling you on a little sled. Second Corinthians 5, enough of that. <laughs> if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things are passed away. All things are become new. All things are of God who has reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ, who has given to us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, that God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and has committed unto us the word of reconciliation. Our job now is to go tell everybody they've been reconciled back to God by Jesus Christ, not by a man, not by a woman, not by a dog, not by a priest, not by a preacher, by the man, Jesus Christ. That's our job. That's the gospel. That's the great commission. Go back to verse 15, because now that we're born again, this is how we should live. And this is where a lot of us miss it. Verse 15 says, and that he died for all, that they which live, that is in Christ, should, live un should not live unto themselves. That they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but live unto him which died for them and rose again. This is our job as Christians now. We don't live for ourselves. Paul went on to say in another place, no man lives to himself and no man certainly dies to himself. But whether we live or die, we are Christ's. We don't live for ourselves anymore. 
as Christians, people ought to be able to tell we're Christians. They ought to be able to tell we walk with Jesus, that we walk in holiness, that we know the Bible, that our family is protected by the Bible, by the Christian lifestyle. Our kids ought to have God rubbed upon them and the doctrines of Christ rubbed upon them. Our kids ought to be able to know the Bible and know church and be thankful to be a part of a Christian family. It ought to be evident that God is in us. That if he's come to live on the inside of us and he's made us new, we should look different than all the old dead people out there. I don't know if you know this or not, but when somebody dies and they're dead, Mr. Rick works with a funeral home. I was going to say nursing home. That feels not the same, but kind of close sometimes. Mr. Rick picks up dead bodies. I'm sure he would testify. There's a big difference between that dead body and living bodies. And even someone who doesn't know what they're looking at would say, I think that guy's dead. There ought to be that stark a distinction between us who are alive in Christ and the world system who's dead to God, who needs the salvation we preach. We ought to be so full of life in our marriage and full of life in our parenting and full of life on our jobs and full of life in our career and full of life in our hobbies. People come and ask us the reason for our hope. They come and ask us, where'd you get all this life? The Bible says we're a sweet-smelling savor unto life. Dead people start stinking pretty good. We ought to smell of God. There ought to be a distinction. Now that we're born again, something in us makes us different. And the only way we can be born again is by giving our life to Jesus Christ, calling upon him for the remission of our sins, for the salvation of our life, that we would walk with him and be new creatures in him. That's the, the gospel, not in a nutshell, because that's about 50 minutes of preaching right there. But that's the gospel, pretty simply put. It's good news to those that are dying. And once you get a hold of it, you ought to always brush it off, be thankful for it, take it out, look at it, say, thank God I'm born again. Maybe in a rough week, but I'm not going to hell. Jesus knows me. He doesn't deny me. I'm not going to deny him. It's not easy right now. I don't have all the answers, but I got Jesus. And that's better than the answer sometimes. And if I don't have the answer, he does, and I'll just keep walking with him. Amen?